The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Good morning, Ecclesia. Would you help me thank Matt and the band for leading us? As we open up the scriptures together, um, I just invite you to prayer with me. Creator God, we are honored, Lord, that you have made this incredible promise to us that you would be with us. God, in our moments of success and failure, when, Lord, we feel abandoned and alone, that you are with us, that you are walking with us and guiding with us, that you are constantly speaking to us. And Lord, we would ask that you would give us eyes to see you, give us the eyes to see you in the nature and world that you have created, in the words of our brothers and sisters who speak truth to us. God, that we would see you as we open the pages of scripture and that we would form the kind of hearts and the kind of ears that would discern your voice in a very crowded and noisy world. And toward that end, God, I pray that you pour through me the gift of teaching, that everything said here be from you and because of you and guiding us towards you as we partner with you, God, to bring about your preferred future for all of creation. And we ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I, uh, when I think about the blessings of my life, the most important blessings of um, my life before um, I got married, my life together with Rochelle, just the whole grand arc of where God has led me. The thing that I am most blessed by has always been people. And we have a rich history on both sides of our family of God just continuing to bring people into our lives. And I count that as my clearest and most beautiful blessing. And I think in our world, what we need more probably now than at any time, especially in recent history, is just to give our lives over to the blessing of people. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately because some of my friends have been walking through some really difficult times. And I've shared before with you and at our downtown campus that one of the greatest blessings of my life is this group of uh, five other guys that I met when we were in college. And we decided our sophomore, our junior year in college, somewhere around there, that we would get together every Thursday night and just talk about what was going on in our lives and pray together. And it wasn't that we were like super spiritual or really into God. It's just when you go to a Christian college, um, get together in a prayer group is the kind of thing that you do so you can prove to other people that you're really spiritual. And so we d have been doing that uh, for about 25 years now. And I have this really crystal clear memory of one night our sophomore year. So I went to a private Christian school out in West Texas called Abilene Christian University. And if you went to a big school, like if you went to like UT or Texas A&M, because somebody always does that, um, just, I've just given over to it now, like your Pavlovian response to your name. Um, uh, you don't understand what it was like to go to a private Christian school way out in West Texas, because when you're in that kind of place, like there is nothing to do. I think that's why they put private Christian schools out in places like that. So you have nothing to do. Like you can't get into trouble unless you create it yourself. And that's what we decided to do. So 
one Friday night, one Saturday night, I can't remember exactly what it was, uh, we were all sitting around the dorm, just absolutely bored to tears, with, trying to come up with something to do. And one of us, and I can't remember who, remembered that they had heard from somebody else that out in this even smaller West Texas town, this town called Albany, that there was an old decommissioned bridge and that people used to go out there and jump off this bridge. And somebody said, hey, do you think that would be a good idea? And the rest of us said, yeah. And so at a private Christian school, uh, there's a curfew. And if you're going to be out after curfew, you have to sign out after curfew. But I lived in a boys' dorm, and boys don't get pregnant. And there's a huge double standard. They never cared where we went. So one of us signed out to like Atlanta, another to like Mexico. And we all just hopped in these two cars and headed out to Albany. And so we're driving around, and we find out in the middle of nowhere this old bridge. And so we climb up to the top of the old bridge, and it is a completely moonless night. Like, you can't see anything. And so we knew we had found the bridge, but we didn't know if there was any water <laughs> under the bridge. And so one of us decided the only way to know is if we jump in. And so he jumps, and the rest of us listen. <laughs> and we hear the splash. And remember when your mom asked you if all your friends jumped off an old decommissioned bridge, would you jump off a bridge too? The answer, apparently, is yes. So we all jumped off the bridge. And now we're all in this water, and it's a great time until we realize that we have to get out of this water. Now, we are all about 20 years old. And as I tell my two daughters, um, there is a simple equation in life. Um, 20 years old plus male equals stupid. <laughs> and when you get... 20-year-olds who are male together, they do a lot of stupid stuff. And this was one of them. Because looking at the banks where we'd have to get out of this water, it was all like thorny and briar-filled, and there was no way to get out of it. And what I didn't tell you is that when we came up with this genius plan to go out and find this bridge and then jump into it, like we didn't stop long enough to like get swim trunks or anything like that. We were unprepared. So when we were at the top of the bridge, we did what all young 20-somethings would do. We just jumped in, let me say, bare-skinned. <laughs> and now the only way to get out is to make your way up through all of these weeds and thorns. But I notice that in one little spot, there is this pipe, like a drainage pipe, that's sticking out of the water, going up the hill. And if you, if you shimmy up the pipe just right, you might could make it. But the problem is that now we're wet 
and muddy. So this is going to be a thorny situation. And so my first friend kind of makes his way up, and he's a safe. And then the next one goes up, and he makes it all the way safe. And then it's my turn. And I'm going up, and I'm doing pretty good. But then I slip. And my left leg falls on the left side of the pipe. And my right leg does not fall off the left side of the pipe. And I don't want to get too graphic about anything, but I have two daughters. And I am so glad that I have two daughters. And so we figured after that, that was enough jumping off the bridge. Like we could tell everybody for the rest of our lives that we had done that. So we load back up in the cars and we're headed back to Abilene when the car in front of us stops right in front of the Albany courthouse. Now you've all probably driven through small Texas towns and like at the county seat, that's where the courthouse is. And it's the biggest building anywhere and it's got about a thousand floodlights on it. You can see everything. And the car in front of ours stops. And my friend, Sean, who is right now a very good and successful therapist, gets out of the car and starts running toward the courthouse, like with all these lights. And as he's running toward the courthouse, he starts taking off all of his clothes again. You remember when your mom asked you, if all of your friends ran around the Albany courthouse naked, if you would do it too? Apparently, the answer is yes. So that's what we all decide to do for absolutely no reason. I have no idea what any of us were thinking, what was going to happen if we got caught, why we were doing this. Like if someone were to sit down and say, well, why did you do that? There is no good answer. It was just what we were all doing. And that's what's what we've did. And here's the crazy thing about that, that group of guys. Like we have decided, we decided, made a pact somewhere along the lines that we would just do everything together. And so from the time that we were in school, we have been the people for whom we have done everything together, walked through everything together. And in the years, we've walked through divorces together, children born with birth defects together, cancer, the death of siblings, the death of parents, marriages who've struggled, lost jobs, lost income. In the recent years, we have walked through clinical depression together and anxiety and anxiety meds. And three weeks ago, we were all together in College Station for the weekend because my closest friend in the world, who was the best man at my wedding, I was the best man at his weddings, his father died. And we just have this agreement that when something happens to one of us, 
It happens to all of us. And they, for me, have been for my entire life my deepest and truest community. And my guess is that however it is that you arrive today, that one of your deepest longings in life, in the world, is to have people, a group of people, who truly, deeply, profoundly knows you and that you know. Like one, of that, one of the things about that little group of people is there are no secrets, which comes as great comfort to all of our wives. And because of it, there's always a place for healing and truth-telling and struggle. And if statistics are to be believed, most Americans, when asked, say that they don't have any close friends. And most people make their last close or lifelong friend before the age of 30. And all of us have this longing that when, when someone asks us, when someone walks up to us and asks, how are you doing? We all want that to be real, but we all feel like that it's not. <laughs> like, how am I doing? Like, really, how long do you have? There is a deep and increasing sense of isolation and loneliness in our world. And that desire you feel inside of you, that wanting for more to know and to be known, like that's not just you. You're not making that up. It is this piece of your soul that needs community. And to be in a community of people who have your best interest, your life in mind. And what we, what we mean when we say community is that you are going to enter into a relationship with a group of people trusting that it is for your mutual benefit. So if you've been around Ecclesia for the last couple of months, you know uh, that Pastor Chris and I are in a series talking about um, figures from Christian history who point us to God in really significant ways, people who are monumental in how we function as a community and to us as individuals. And one of the people that I want to introduce you to is a man named Jean Vanier. Jean Vanier um, died this last May. And the reason that he's important is because he shows us that to find and experience deep community, what that is built on, the substructure of deep community, is when we learn to bear and share our own brokenness. And the reason that more of us don't experience deeper community is our resistance to bearing and sharing brokenness. So Vanier joined the British military, he's a Canadian citizen and joined the British military when he was 13 years old to fight in World War II. And he says that in the army, what they taught him that he became a technician of destruction. But after a while of serving in the army, um, that Jesus revealed to him a new path forward, a path of peace. 
And so later in his life, in 1964, he became aware of all of these adults who were essentially abandoned in institutions because they had some disability. And he picked two men to come and live with him rather than leaving them in an asylum. And though he didn't know it, what he was doing at that very moment, he was founding what later would become La Arch Communities, where um, people, men and women with disabilities, lived alongside their caregivers. And it was a movement that spread throughout the world. Um, some of you know the name Henry Nouwen, who was a priest and a writer. It's where Henry Nouwen went and spent his last days caring for people with mental and physical disabilities. And what they found, what Vanier discovered in that setting, in, that, in La Arche, is that it was in the bearing and sharing of brokenness that real community was created. Uh, this is what he says in his book, From Brokenness to Community. He says, community is a wonderful place. And I want us to pause there just for a second because we just glance over that because people use that word all the time. It's filled with wonder. Community is filled with wonder. It is life-giving, but it's also a place of pain because it is a place of truth and of growth, the revelation of our pride, our fear, and our brokenness. So what Vanier is saying is that when you have an opportunity, when you enter into community, when you first do that, you won't like it very much. You will come into it with all sorts of ideas about how great it's gonna be. And then when it gets real, you won't like it because in community, there is a place of truth telling. And most people struggle to live in community because they are trying, we are trying desperately to have true community with false selves. And there is no way to have community while offering to other people in your community a false version of yourself. How many of your relationships are built on fake news about you? Or at least your highlight reel? all the money you've made, all the things that you've accomplished, what your kids are doing, how they've achieved. How often when you enter into a relationship, what you are giving to people, what you're offering up to others is your resume rather than yourself. And we live in a time and a place where friendship the word friendship doesn't mean anything and community means just a little bit more of that. But what if the reason that more of us aren't experiencing community is because we are offering ourselves from a place where we can't experience community. No one can have a real relationship with a fake you. So even here at Ecclesia, one of the people who I'm closest with, when we first got together, he said, yeah, I want to grab coffee or lunch sometimes. Can you do that? And we did. And we sat down for coffee. And he said, before we go any farther, um, I just want to tell you some things about me. And then he spent the next 15 minutes just offering up to me all the places in not the distant past, but the recent past where he felt like he had failed, failed to be the person that he wanted to be, failed to be the husband that he wanted to be, the father that he wanted to be. And as he's talking to me about this, I think, 
sold. I can be in a relationship with you because this is about the truth. And, and I'm a pastor, so people lie to me all the time. Like, you, everybody prays more than they actually do, reads the Bible more than they actually do, gives more than they actually do. Their marriage is better than they actually is. I know you're lying. I feel like this is just a little pack we make between ourselves. But you can't have a real relationship based on a fake you. And what if the reason that you feel isolated, that you feel alone, is because you actually are? that no one knows you. This is what Vanier says in Community and Growth. He says, it's only when we stand up with all our failings and sufferings and try to support others rather than withdraw into ourselves that we can fully live the life of community. It's only when we stand up with all of our failings and sufferings So what if the real reason that so many of us feel alone isn't because everybody else is jealous of your good looks or you're just so special or nobody gets you, you're unique in the world? What if the real reason is our failure to share our sufferings? In the early days of the church, just as things were getting off the ground, The early Christians had a unique way of living together. And Luke talks about this in Acts. This is what he says about their common life together. He says, the community continually committed themselves to learning what the apostles taught them, gathering for fellowship, breaking bread, and praying. Everyone felt a sense of awe because the apostles were doing many signs and wonders among them. There was an intense sense of togetherness among all who believed. They shared all their material possessions in trust. They sold any possessions and goods that did not benefit the community and used the money to help everyone. They were unified as they worshiped at the temple day after day in homes. They broke bread and shared meals with glad and generous hearts. So Luke gives this picture of the early church and they are doing everything together all of the time. They're breaking bread, they're worshiping, they're in each other's home. But he starts all that out with this thing that everybody that I know just about has overlooked or come up with a reason to not do, which is that they shared all of their possessions in common. And the reason that we overlook and ignore that is because nobody wants to share their possessions. And the idea that we would share all of our possessions with a community of believers, like that goes against everything that we've taught and everything we've been culturally ingrained, it's been culturally ingrained in us to believe. And if you're worried, that you're gonna have to share all of your possessions, what Luke is talking about is way worse than that. (laughs) Because guess what? When you share all of your possessions, you share everything. Because sooner or later, all of your virtues, all of your pathologies, all of your sins, all of your generosities, sooner or later, it all shows up in your bank account. When you share your possessions, you share everything. 
When our family was living in California, um, one of the women who I served on staff with there had lived in community, sharing possessions with a group of other Christians. And I asked her, what was that like for you? And she said, oh, it was terrible. He said, it was great to always have people who cared about you around. Someone's always there to watch the kids. It, a lot of things were really great. But it's the sharing your possessions part. Because then everything you do matters. You're taking your kid to the doctor again with a fever that low. I wouldn't take my kid if the fever was, was that low. You're spending money on therapy. Well, what's wrong with you? They thought you were starting to gain a little bit too much weight too fast. Are we buying the right food? Are we buying too much food? When you share your possessions, you share everything. And I would bet that the real resistance that we have against that kind of idea isn't that we aren't generous people and we are just greedy. It's that if we were to share our possessions, people would know everything. But this is how the church is designed to function. It's a community of people who bear and share one another's brokenness. For you to know my life, for me to know your life, and for us to offer strength and grace and redemption to one another. Look, there simply is no such thing. The scriptures know no such thing as the idea of my God and I. Now, when you read the Bible, when you read the New Testament and you come across the word you, that's not about you. Most of those yous are plural, that from the beginning until the end of Scripture, when you open up the Bible, that is written to and about and for a community of people. And the way that you find community is to enter and lead with your brokenness. This is how the Apostle Paul talks about it in Galatians 6. He says, shoulder each other's burdens. And then you will live as the law of the anointed teaches us. Don't take this opportunity to think you are better than those who slip because you aren't. Then you become the fool and deceive even yourself. I kind of wish that we took this command as seriously as we take other commands. But it's not a suggestion. It's not a request. Paul says, if you want to live as Jesus teaches, you shoulder each other's burdens. So I just want to leave you with a couple of thoughts about beginning steps from moving from brokenness to community. And they're not the only thoughts. These are just two, I think, are good entryways, good on-ramps for everyone. And the first one is this, is that you have to lose your desire to be first. 
You cannot live in community. You cannot be a community as long as you have a desire to be first. This is what Vanier says about it. He says, when you have been taught from an early age to be first to win, and then suddenly you sense that you are being called by Jesus to go down the ladder and to share your life with those who have little culture, who are poor and marginalized, a real struggle breaks out within oneself. As I began living with people like Raphael and Philip, I began to see all the hardness of my own heart. It is painful to discover the hardness in one's own heart. They have been teaching me that behind the need for me to win, there are my own fears and anguish, the fear of being devalued or pushed aside, the fear of opening up my heart and of being vulnerable or feeling helpless in front of others in pain. There is a pain and brokenness of my own heart. So you know why we resist bearing and sharing our brokenness? Because we'll look like losers. Couldn't finish, couldn't compete, couldn't keep up. We have to confess all of the broken places within us. And man, hashtag winning, that's what we're all about. But you'll never get there. You will never overcome the isolation and loneliness because only one person stands on top of the podium and they stand alone. So you have to find some group of people to share your brokenness with. The second thing is that community is fueled by commitments. And if you're going to push back on anything that I said, it'll be this. Because you know what we think community is fueled by? Convenience. And think about most of your relationships. Not all, but most of your relationships functionally are relationships of convenience. You live in the same neighborhoods, your kids do the same stuff, you work together, you see each other at the gym. And once that convenience breaks down, once you move away, once someone goes to a different school, once you don't go to that gym anymore, the relationship goes away because the foundation of it was convenience. And you can never have a communal relationship without the sacrifice of commitment to say that I am in this relationship no matter what happens. And this is what Vanier dis discovered, that as people would come and volunteer at large, they would come in and say, oh, I wanna do this with my life. And they would have to commit to the relationship before they knew what the relationship was going to be. That they were coming and they were going, I want to live alongside and walk alongside uh, men and women who are disabled. And they never knew who they were going to get or what their disability was going to be. And so some of them ended up with what others consider pretty light duty, someone who was pretty highly functional, but others still had to bathe people and feed people and clean people after they used the bathroom. And you never knew what the relationship was going to be, but it had only become a deeply meaningful connection if you commit ahead of time. And the most successful marriages already know this, that you wake up five years, 10 years in a marriage married to a different person than you married because people change and you didn't know what you were getting when you signed up. And the only way for this to be successful is to stay signed up even though I didn't know what I was getting. Community is fueled by commitments. 
And all of us have seen enough relationships fall apart simply because people weren't committed to them. Most of us enter into relationships like Seinfeld dated. And break up with a girl because she was a close talker or a loud talker or had man hands. that as soon as it's no longer convenient, it deteriorates. We are trained to look for relationships of convenience, and that's why we never experienced relationships of community. I'm gonna show up, I'm gonna be there, I'm gonna do the thing when I have to sit in the traffic or spend the money or get on the plane, whatever it costs. And this is what Jesus does. When when Jesus comes to earth, there's very little that Jesus couldn't have done without the disciples. He didn't need the disciples to heal anybody, to raise anybody from the dead. But he forms a community, a community of broken people who share their brokenness with the world And because they did, Luke is able to later in Acts say that these men have turned the world upside down. And here's all I want to suggest to you. Is that you need people. You are designed to need people that you'd jump off a bridge for. And they would do it for you. And until you do, there will always be a part of you that is wanting and longing for more. And that is not an ache. That is a call that God wants to give you more. Ecclesia, let me pray for you. God, would you lead us into deeper, more connected relationships? Lord, people that you have brought into our lives and are bringing into our lives, that we would begin to look now for the people that you have invited to be a part of our days and nights that we can form deeply connected, meaningful relationships that will last the test of time. And that we would emulate Jesus who comes to earth and as the scriptures tells us, to give his life, lays his life down for his friends. And we ask for it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ectasiahouston.org.